Hello and welcome to Mistakes Were Made with me, Chris Slowly. Normally I'll leave a gap there for somebody else to speak, but it's a strange one this week because it's just me alone, which means I could probably say whatever I want about Alex and Frank. But try to keep it professional, I won't. So it's also strange that it's just one of us, but strange also in that we're going to a new sort of realm. So this Mistakes Were Made isn't an investment mistake. It's actually looking at something more conceptual. So hot off the heels of CityWire Berlin, which took place last week, we spoke with John Kampfner, who's an author, commentator, columnist, and also a very connected man in the world of politics. So this is Mistakes Were Made in Politics with John Kampfner. Before we jump into John, we're joined, as always, by Jamie Catherwood, who's going to take us through a historical mistake using his own unique stylings. This week, we'll be looking at Malaysian rubber plants and the boom and bust that followed the development of the automobile. So enjoy, Jamie. And after that, we'll jump straight into John. London's stock market experienced a rubber boom in the early 20th century due to surging demand for an innovation that had just started rolling off assembly lines in America, the automobile. Global demand for rubber spiked in tandem with the rising number of automobiles being manufactured in America, which all obviously required tires. Consequently, shares of Malaysian rubber plantations skyrocketed as investors became bullish about future demand for this commodity. Many brokers in London founded Malaysian rubber plantations and floated shares on the newly established rubber exchange in London. Stories spread of a city merchant that quit his job to day trade rubber shares full time and a group of hotel guests that had started a trading operation out of their room in a Swiss ski resort. While there were some quality companies in the rubber space that truly benefited from this boom in rubber demand, there were countless examples of shady brokers and conmen scamming investors with exciting investment opportunities. One rubber company, Prospectus, even offered the secrets to the company for £50,000. There were also reports from a few of these Malaysian plantations that raw stumps were stuck in the ground and described as one year's rubber. The Economist wrote at the time, prudent optimism ceases and is replaced by emotional enthusiasm. Prospectuses pour out and subscriptions pour in. The speculative public wants rubber shares. It does not care which. The great irony, of course, was that this rubber boom defied the basic principles of supply and demand. As more rubber plantation companies were founded and extracted rubber, the price of rubber would fall as supply flooded the market. Yet, investors believed that the price would continue rising, making rubber plantations a great investment. Doesn't make much sense. Then, rubber prices inevitably fell, and shares of rubber companies plummeted. For example, the price of Senawang rubber estate shares had risen as high as 1675 in 1910, but finished the year at 40. Many speculators were ruined by this brief but powerful boom in rubber plantations. John, I'm going to do this straight in. Big Go on. question. Go on. What is the biggest mistake people make in politics? Thinking that they can control factors that they can't control. Is that universal? That's everyone in politics or just leaders? No. Oh, good question. I mean, the more power you have, the more power you assume the more you think you can exercise that power even where you can't. Okay. That's quite philosophical, philosophical way to, to get going. Right at the start. And how does that typically manifest itself? Like, what do you see leaders doing? What do you see big politicians doing? Well, I mean, look at Xi Jinping in China, right? I mean, it's also about what is a... Another related question is what is the difference between mad and bad, right? And um, so Xi Jinping was, up until a certain point, everybody would say you may not like his politics, you may not like his approach to human rights, but he is constantly rational. He is constantly thinking long term. He is never going to do anything. Because he's allowed to think long term. Because he's absolutely. He's created a structure that allows him to do that. <laughs> 
but 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 still a lot of authoritarian leaders don't even if they've got that right to because they don't have to subject themselves to the will of the people in a, 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 what we would call a normal election so we thought up until two or three years ago that you may not like him but he was always he would never act on the basis of emotion and i would contend his clampdown on hong kong which has done him damage and some of his subsequent actions not least zero covid are irrational actions it's not just a question of are they right or are they wrong are they good or are they bad they're not rational uh, and he had had that incredibly i don't need to do anything quickly because i've got time to plan I cannot tell you the number of Western delegations from the creative industries, from science, from you name it, who would just go to China to say, how do you do this long-termism? It is so successful. And I don't think that's happening now. Is this the impact of absolute power? I mean, can you see parallels with Putin here, mistakes that, that they've made? I think Putin is completely different. He was never rational. He was never long-termist. There is a time... Okay, there is a time-honoured Russian disease almost around grievance and encirclement. If you go back to 19th century, we are—I am ranging now—but you go back, you, you go into 19th century Russian literature. It's all around encirclement, grievance. It's all about the Russian spirit, the Russian soul, how we're being deprived of oxygen, how we've got to be able to uh, live as we want to, and foreigners are encircling us. And Putin is doing exactly the same stuff. And there's pretty much nothing that Putin is doing that is rational. There is nothing in the invasion of Ukraine, again, leave morals uh, uh, aside, that is helping him, it, that is helping Russia. There's nothing rational about it. Well, can we go, I mean, behind the curtain, we're doing this at Berlin, you've just in a presentation where you touched upon the fact that you once had a lengthy four-hour chat with Putin. This was 18 years ago. Can you talk to us about that? What was the circumstances and how much has he changed since then? Because you mentioned that was possibly a point where you realised either cracks were showing or he had already cracked. Yeah, well, it was called the Valdai Conference. It was a sort of annual gathering of sort of thinkers and journalists and think tankers, former diplomats, about 50 people from around the world. Every September, and I was on it until they kicked me off for being too much like trouble, I think. And this particular occasion there had been this massacre in a school in the north caucasus called beslan and everybody was really upset and traumatized as as was the right thing to feel and everybody assumed that putin would cancel on us on a monday evening but no he we were all driven out to his official residence a sort of checkers style uh, residence in the uh, west of moscow and from nine o'clock until half past one in the morning we were there no vodka within sight he says, sadly, no whiskey, no vodka, just tea and water and some not very nice biscuits. And um, I had the fortune or the misfortune to have to ask him the first question, which was expressing sympathy with what had happened and basically just talking about NATO expansion, EU expansion. And he just went off on one for half an hour. And it's the most extraordinary exegesis of this theory. He didn't once stumble. He didn't once repeat himself. He was utterly focused in expressing just what I've said, this theory of encirclement. You know, what have you guys done for us? I didn't stand in your way on in the war in Iraq. I uh, gave you bases in which to, to mount uh, the invasion of Afghanistan, which is broadly all true. I've never caused you trouble, and all you do is you always try and have one up on us. And 
from that point, I remember coming back to Britain, writing it up uh, for the magazine I was I was editing, the New Statesman at the time. And Jack Straw was the foreign secretary, and he he asked me, and he just said, "Can we talk about this?" And I said, "Yeah, but I've written pretty much everything I know." But anyway, we had a really interesting conversation, and the British government at the time simply wasn't of that same view. It it really thought that you can still do business with Putin. But you'd seen visibly, he was on a different track. Yeah. You're completely thinking. And it's partly because he was just talking to us in a way that he wouldn't do with ambassadors and with other leaders. So they they refused to accept the status quo that that was actually happening, that Putin's viewpoint was so strong at that point. Yeah, I mean, that said, I, I, I mean, it's hard to tell because as a leader, as a government, what are you supposed to do in that situation? You still want to talk you know, talk the talk, you know, um, is, is, is still important and keeping lines of communication open. So I, I don't necessarily criticize them for doing that, but it was absolutely um, clear to me then that we were on a straight line to, and you know, it's not just Ukraine now, it was Ukraine in 2014, it was Georgia twice, um, it's been all kinds of threats, it's been perpetual cyber threats, it has been funding parties of the far right and the far left across Europe with comparative success. Um, you know, he has been on his grievance agenda for a long time. We talked, we, we've talked in this event about sort of big personalities. We did a voting question about Xi Jinping, Putin, Elon Musk and Donald Trump. Do we fixate on just those sort of that, I suppose, what was it, great men of history? the idea that there are only a few actors how many people behind the scenes are we not aware of are there are there actual people that are making key decisions but don't want to be that almost celebrity politician well there's a very good ft foreign affairs commentator gideon rackman who's written a, a book came out earlier this year um about the strong men and the revival of of the strong man and it's always a man um and so leaving Putin and Xi Jinping to one side, you Erdogan in, in, in Turkey, Bolsonaro famously in Brazil. And some of it may just be pretense, um, but they can wreak a huge amount of damage. Boris Johnson tried to be that person. He was more of a sort of clownish, laughable figure than a, than a strong man. And it's all obviously personified in Donald Trump. Uh, and there is a particular phenomenon. I mean, there've always been people like that, but it almost feels like a, a sort of, it's like an archetype. It's an archetype. It's like a sort of club. I was going to call it a gentleman's club, but I don't think they're particularly... I don't think they would get into gentlemen's Barbarian's clubs. Club. Barbarian's club. Yeah, good, good call. It depends on your gentleman. What is that like? you know, With that in mind, obviously you mentioned the havoc they can wreak. Do you think political mistakes are punished less now than they were in the past? Is there a period where it was equally sort of free reign? That's such a good question. Um, what do I think? I mean, in you would think that with 24-hour news, which begat social media, um, with everybody, in theory, having the right to publish what they like and to say what they like and to comment in whichever way they want and to find anything out, that you would have more accountability and more transparency now than you've ever had. But as you intimate, it's probably less now. Because of the noise? Because of the noise, because... Um, there is so much content that it's very easy to distract people away from that content. And most importantly of all, this this flexible approach to truth. My truth is my truth. And it may be completely different. I could say I haven't done something or other. 
And if I believe I haven't, then I can get away with well, it. Well, we joked beforehand about Donald Trump's approach to the midterms. If they yeah. win, it's down to me. If they lose, I have nothing exactly. to do with it. And I think we were making fun of that. It's like, that's how a five-year-old plays a board game. Yeah. But that's becoming sort of the adopted rhetoric. That's almost how people view it as, if it works, it was my idea. If it doesn't, I'm not in it. And that's where you get this bifurcation of societies. Um, I mean, the American conversation is so much ranging on good versus evil. And, you know, I mean, it was quite a funny... Um, expression that the uh sort of or um the alt republicans use now which is when they talk about extreme liberals um when it comes to the democrats i thought oh, really can you be an extreme liberal uh you certainly be an extreme socialist but can you be an extreme liberal um but both sides are accusing the other of wanting to destroy the country and that's incredible language this inability to agree to disagree the inability to give up power gracefully, saying, we've had our turn, it's somebody else's turn, we'll try, we want to win back power. Not in Britain, obviously. Oh, well, in Britain. Everyone just, has a go in Britain. Exactly. Exactly. How many more are we going to have over, over the next couple you, of years? Um, I want to come back to China. Do you think Xi Jinping's consolidation of power is a mistake for the world? Oh, God. I mean, is it, I mean it, it kind of doesn't really matter if it is or it isn't. It, you know, yeah, it, so. it, 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 I mean, it is what it is. And um, if it is a mistake for China, then, you know, the world will be more unstable. You know, as I was going back to the beginning, I mean, the, the sort of Chinese authoritarian rationalism was something the West was really quite comfortable with. I mean, you know, I remember David Cameron and George Osborne going on various there of their sort of trade missions to China. Yeah, they would say a few little sort of, oh, by the way, you know, would you, you know, not be so beastly about this person and that person? I hope you don't mind me asking, you know. And then it would go back to being, you know, now what, you know, what more can, you know, we flog you and what more, you know, you know, how many more of our nuclear power stations and electricity grids can you buy up uh, for us, if you wouldn't mind, please. Meantime, we'll roll out the red carpet. So we didn't really care about this stuff very much. We played lip service to it because, as I say, you had that sense that China was growing and it may not be for the squeamish, but it was the gift that kept on giving in terms of market. And as I say, it was a place where the rules of business were reasonably established. And it's when those rules, when the whole pandemic overreaction and this increasingly aggressive, belligerent she, um, it's not good for business. Do you think the US made a mistake, you touched on this in your speech, by sending Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan? I don't know. I genuinely don't know what they anticipated the result of this to be. You obviously scenario plan and you do your, your risk uh, assessments beforehand, what the Chinese reaction would have been. Chinese were never going to say, oh, you know, good on you, you know, well, you know, welcome to Taiwan. Uh, were they surprised by the extent of the Chinese response? I don't know. But as I was saying, uh, you know, to the to the delegates here, uh, they're damned if they, you know, she and the, Amer and the American administration damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. Because if they don't support Taiwan, you might as well just give up on Taiwan. If they do support Taiwan, then it enrages the Chinese. Least lose situation in some sense. Or just keep it going situation. Just sort oh, of, I see what you mean. You know, just hope muddle through. Just muddle through. I mean, that's what strategic ambiguity is. It's just sort of how can we kind of, you know, kick the, the ball down the road. Um, 
kick the can down the road uh, for as long as possible without inviting, you know, the ultimate, which is obviously, you know, the Chinese invasion. Is there, this is a slightly offbeat question, is there a particular political mistake that winds you up the most that you see repeated? I haven't seen it repeated, but I've seen it um, uh, get worse. And sorry to sound so predictable. You know what you're, I'm going to say, do you? Oh, questions. No. <laughs> yeah, that too. Brexit. Yeah. Wait, I mean, well, wait, a, a, why, single why act, a single act of national self-determination, economic, geostrategic self-harm that need not to have been administered. I cannot think of one. Do you think the rest of the world see it that way? Um, not everybody, but, you know, I was talking to Norwegians who think it's a good thing because Britain is now more flexible and doing more stuff in the Nordics, which is true. And, you know, a bad decision doesn't mean everything is bad. It doesn't mean 100% of things are bad. But uh, on balance, it's... And it's not getting any better. And they, they're beginning... I mean, even now, people like Steve Baker who was one of the Brexit cheerleaders and um, now a Northern Ireland minister, made a remarkable speech. We're getting very domestic now, but made a remarkable speech at the Tory conference uh, six or eight weeks ago, in which he apologised to the Irish government for the way the Brits have behaved since Brexit. Wow. And so you're getting that now. This Truss, you know, who's she? Liz Truss, yeah. So she was there for 45 days. Um, the great the great budget that uh, res restored wealth and prosperity and glory and growth to Britain um, and everything else that, that she did. Uh, but she actually did do one thing, which was to go to this, and people didn't really remark upon it much at the time, this European political uh, community. And the fact that it wasn't covered, I mean, you would assume conservative Brexit supporting papers. Imagine if Keir Starmer had gone. It would be thin end of the wedge, getting back into the EU by the back door, you know, treachery, blah, 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 blah. But do you uh, think that was an acknowledgement of the mistake of Brexit and trying to get no, some I, leverage I, back? They will never say that. You will never, ever get a Brexiteer, I think, saying, oh, sorry, yeah, we, we screwed up a bit there. Um, I mean, it's like, it's human nature. If you make some terrible mistake in your life, um, it's it's quite rare to say, you know, yeah, sorry, you know, that's a terrible decision. I shouldn't, you know, shouldn't have done it. It goes against the grain. And, you know, I mean, we could talk forever about Brexit, but I mean, what were the motivations behind people voting for it? It was incredibly complicated. And you put anything on a referendum paper and the government of the day, assuming he's out of favour, which most governments are, will get a kicking. You could have asked any question and you'd have got that. Well, I heard even the semantics of it because leave is an action and remain is stasis. So saying leave seemed like you were doing something. I mean, it's all sort of, we've, we've trawled over this so much. I mean, the campaign itself was an absolute total dog's breakfast and all the messaging was wrong. And I mean, there were many guilty people um, around that time. And then you had the pandemic, which made it almost impossible to draw a direct link between the uh, between that the, the the actual fact of departing from the EU and the economic malaise that followed, because you could blame everything on the pandemic. But I do think that now with Britain, I mean, everywhere in Europe, everywhere in, in most countries in the world are in deep, deep trouble economically, huge inflation, um, labor shortages in many countries, not necessarily all caused by Brexit or other things. Uh, so there's a huge amount that is shared right, that you can't attribute to one particular decision. But Britain is in a particularly bad place at the moment. Quick question on that. That was a long answer. Yeah, it was a long answer, but that's fine. Um, quick, quick question on that. 
Do you think there's a way back for Britain into the EU? Would we ever rejoin? And secondly, like wild prediction, how long do you think it will take if you think that's the case? I'll certainly be dead. Right. Uh, so, 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 how, so, how, how long do you think you've got you, or you... <laughs> <laughs> No, I'll be dead before it happens. That's, that's for sure. Now, I don't know how long I've got to live, but hopefully a while. Um, but so it's not going to happen anytime soon. I'm not, I think actually in some ways it's a bit of a red herring now because, well, for a start, you have to ask, would the 27 members want us back? And it's really moot whether they would. Secondly, they, we would not go, our mem when we were members, we had a lot of cakeism. We had membership, but also we were allowed not to be part of all kinds of things, whether it was Schengen. Um, or whether it was the, the huge rebate that Margaret Thatcher had negotiated. We'd get none of that. Uh, we'd probably be forced to join the euro. So in other words, there would be, which wouldn't be a bad thing, by the way, but that's for another conversation. But um, so we basically, if you want to come back, you come back on our terms. And I think that would be impossible. So I don't think membership back is ever is going to happen, as I say, not for a long time. Will we, and I do think we're beginning already, get to a point where we are much more closely aligned and well, the, the the first step is to stop doing all the silly stuff that we do and as soon as we sort out the northern Ireland protocol which apparently can be sorted out in two hours if you if you wanted to it's just very technical stuff it's easily done then we'd be back in horizon science cooperation we'd have the erasmus education stuff that really affects people um, the number of young brits who went around europe on erasmus and that just cut from underneath them uh a huge amount Britain's science and research base and tech base is so strong and we're not allowed to operate uh, except in the most in the smallest ways in 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 Europe and more because Erasmus is now uh, sorry Horizon is now wider than Europe so we've absolutely undermined ourselves those things will come back quite quickly then I think we're going to have associations with the single market with the customs union so in other words, I don't think it's going to be full membership, but I think it will be it will be much closer and uh, hopefully less fraught. I'm conscious that we've taken up a lot of your time and our producer Alan has been sat dutifully on the stage the entire time. So one final question. We did a voting question, which was, which is the toughest job? Central banker, elite sports person, politician or social media mediator. If you had to do one of those jobs, what would you do? I think social, I would do out of interest social media mediating because uh, I don't think I'd be any good at any of the others. Um, but, um, and I just think it's so incredibly difficult. I mean, what is acceptable speech? What is not acceptable speech? What is incitement? What is not? What is truth? What is fiction? Uh, I mean, there's, you know, Facebook's got a, a sort of council of elders who try and oversee this kind of stuff. Facebook's got a council of elders that tries to oversee this stuff. There's a lot that, a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of clever people try to navigate this territory but it's it's well nigh impossible but i love the challenge excellent john thank you very much for your time john great to meet you really enjoyed it thanks for having me mm -hmm.